So we've been working through the seven churches in Revelation, and this week we're on to the second of those churches, the church in Smyrna. I'm going to read to you this, um, this uh, short letter. I think it's the shortest of the seven. And, um, and then I'm going to just make a few exegetical comments about the passage. And then we'll go from there and look into really what the principal theme of this letter indicates to us. What, what is it that God is wanting to speak to us about this morning as we study his word. And so with that in mind, let's read these words from Revelation chapter two. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So very brief letter. Jesus is addressing a church found in a city somewhat to the south and west of Ephesus. Ephesus still at this time is the principal city of the region. But as we saw last week, even now, the river Caister was silting up and the writing was on the wall for that particular city to maintain its economic privileges and its preeminent position within the region. Smyrna was coming up on the rails. It had been built over many centuries along classical lines and so it was a beautiful place for people to live. It was a place where, because of the design of the streets facing the ocean, the cooling breezes of the sea would be like public air conditioning for the city. It was a remarkable place, and already the games that were held in Smyrna were considered to be the great sporting event of the world. It had overtaken the games in Greece, the famous Olympic Games had now taken second place to Smyrna's Super Bowl and, um, and people were gathering from all around the world to enjoy the athletic prowess of those that would gather there year by year. But in this location, a location of considerable wealth, a place of status and privilege, a place of sophistication and athletic ability was a small, struggling church. A church that had probably been identified with the Jewish community in Smyrna. Throughout Asia Minor, the Christian church had often been nurtured within the bosom of the synagogue. And occasionally, we found in these early centuries the Christians would either become too populous 
within the synagogue, or there would be significant differences of opinion, of course, about who the Messiah was. And it appears as though what's happened here is that the synagogue of which the house churches that were followers of Jesus were part decided to excommunicate them. Now, the problem about excommunication within the Jewish community was that if you were excommunicated, then you were considered to be dead. And that meant that the, the cornerstone of your economic life was removed. There was no one who was going to buy your goods. There was no one who was going to trade with you. There was no one who was actually going to speak to you. And so these poor Christians became more and more conscious that life was going to be difficult if they were to continue to follow Jesus. And so Jesus presents himself as one who is the Lord of time. That even if they were to suffer difficulty and trials and testing, if the devil was to put them in prison, he was the Lord of time and he would set boundaries on what it was that they would suffer. And he reminds them that even if they were to die, he was the Lord of the resurrection. And then, as it were, to, to crown it all, he said to them, if you continue to the end, and of course, those who know the Lord will always continue to the end, if you continue to the end, you will receive the Stephanos. The Stephanos, the, the laurel wreath crown of victory. When it says you'll receive the crown of victory, it's referring to the victor's crown that all of them would be very familiar with. They would be very conscious of who it was that had won the particular events in the games. These individuals would be heroic personalities within their culture and within their city, across the world for that matter. These people were identified as the models of humanity. And Jesus says unequivocally to this poor, struggling church that they will be the ones that he identifies as the winners as the victorious, as the ones that he wants to elevate so that all will look upon them and see how it is that Christians should live. There's a story told of a man who was adventuring through the Canadian wilderness. And whilst he was in the Rockies, he noted that the lumberjacks would walk across the logs in the river and release the log jams. And it's fascinating to watch them. They, they would have these big claws attached to their boots and they would go with a hook and a pole in their hands and they would release the log jams in the river. And of course, they were not only agile enough to do that, but quick enough to get back off the logs and onto the shore before all of the logs started moving quickly again. Amazing kinds of levels of skill. 
And this guy watched it with fascination all day. And he particularly noted one guy. He was particularly adept at this dancing across the logs. And as he watched him, he realized that he was pulling particular logs out of the flow and putting them into a quiet area by the bank of the river. And as he watched him, he wondered what it was that he was doing. Eventually, his, his, his uh, desire to understand uh, got the better of him, and so he went over to the guy as he got onto the bank and said, I hope you don't mind. I've just been watching you do this remarkable thing that you do, but I've noticed that you've pulled away some of the logs for some special purpose. And he said, the special purpose is that I'm planning to build my own home here in this area very soon. And what I'm doing is I'm identifying the trees that have grown on the mountaintops. They've suffered greatly in their growth. They've known the battering winds and the incredible storms. They've known the plunging temperatures and the heat of summer. As they've grown, they've grown with a very tight set of rings. So their density is completely different to all of the other trees. It's these trees that have suffered the most that are the best building material. So it is with the Lord as he speaks to the church in Smyrna. The words of Haggai the prophet as he's speaking to people that have a kind of poverty mentality is this, he says, go to the mountains and cut down trees ready to build the house of the Lord. Haggai chapter one verse eight says that. It's amazing, isn't it, that, that right there in the scriptures there's this kind of idea reinforced And so it is those that struggle, those that suffer, those who've had to persevere, who the Lord looks to first to be the very fabric and fiber of his his people. So what is this saying to you and I? Because clearly here are Christians who are struggling. Here are Christians who would be called poor Jesus himself calls these Christians afflicted and poor. And clearly, he is wanting to identify this church as a church for all of us to emulate. In the next generation, one of these Christians will be elevated to the point of global heroism. Bishop Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, will be burned at the stake by the Romans. And his godliness and heroism was so incredible that many, many people came to faith simply because of his martyrdom. And so here are indications that the Lord is particularly keen on all generations of Christians looking at the church of Smyrna 
and seeking to emulate their life. But of course, we are in conflict, aren't we, when we begin to think about these things? Because it feels as though it's really miserable. I mean, after all, many of us have grown up with the baggage and the burdens of religion, and it feels kind of miserable. I mean, do we always have to be dragging around the places as if we've not really got enough? Does it always have to be so hard? Does it always have to feel like everything's against us all the time? Sometimes this develops in us a kind of disposition that you might call a poverty mentality where really we're not allowed to be expressive of the joyful blessings that we've received in case it's thought of as being somewhat arrogant and less honouring of the Lord. It's fascinating, isn't it, that we, that we find ourselves kind of trapped between a prosperity gospel that says, basically, the way that you know you're blessed by God is that you have more than other people. Or a poverty mentality that holds you captive to the idea that not having enough is what God really plans for you. But of course, that's not what's being talked about here. Jesus, when he began the greatest sermon that the world has ever encountered, heard, recorded, or attempted to understand, when he began his sermon, he began with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Luke, when he records Jesus giving similar teaching, perhaps on another occasion, says blessed are the poor. But what is it that Jesus means by this? The word spirit is small s in every translation of the Bible. And what it refers to is the identity of the person involved. The identity of the person being one that associates itself with being poor. But clearly, it's not a poverty that means that we are not able to embrace or receive the things of God because clearly the poor in spirit have the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is abundantly resourced. The kingdom of God is remarkably, overwhelmingly, overflowingly full. So how then should we understand what it is that God is saying to us this morning as he says to the church in Smyrna, 
I'm going to lift you up as an example to others. And what is he saying to you and me when he says, I want you to be like these Christians in Smyrna? Well, I think it's very important that we understand what the, the meaning of the word poor or the meaning of the word poor in spirit indicates in the scriptures. We first really encounter it as a concept, as an idea in the Psalms. And then throughout the rest of the wisdom literature, we, we have an encounter with the beginnings of the meaning of what Jesus is talking about. In Psalm 34, 18, we get a sense of what poverty is from God's perspective. And we get an idea of his position in relation to those people who are known to be poor. They're called the broken in spirit. God is close to the broken in spirit. You see, in the time of Jesus, in fact, during the period in which the Bible is written, several thousand years, this reality is a reality that was understood and was common to all. If you did not have enough resources, if you did not have enough human support, if you were alienated and marginalized, if you were sick, chronically ill, then you would be one of the broken. You would be one of those who is indicated both in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the poor. And very often, poverty landed unequally. And so it is in the Old Testament that God ensures that the widows and the orphans, people upon whom the realities of poverty would, would rest unequally with everyone else, they would most certainly suffer the most. It is the widows and the orphans who we are to not only simply associate with, but welcome into the body of God's community to offer them support and a privileged position of blessing. In the New Testament, you see particular individuals visually revealing to us who the poor are. Mary, Mary kind of points to them in her magnificent hymn. People like the woman with the chronic flow of blood. She spent all her money on doctors and she's found no relief. And because of the religious realities of the day, she is put in a position where she feels not simply alienated, but cursed. If she 
If she touches other people, her presumed uncleanness will somehow communicate to them and they will be contaminated by her. And so she is alone in the world. She's afraid. She's empty. And she chooses to reach out to Jesus. If you want to find a contemporary word that helps you to understand what Jesus means by poor in spirit, or just the word poor, then just replace the word desperate for each one of those expressions. Desperate. If you were desperate in the time of Jesus and you encountered Jesus, you were fortunate indeed. Because Jesus was always oriented towards the desperate. If you were desperate in the time of Jesus and you encountered Jesus in your desperation, then you were the most blessed of people. Because even if you didn't ask for it, Jesus touched your desperation and transformed it. Luke 6 tells us that Jesus spends the whole night praying. We'll get onto this in a minute. Jesus spends the whole night praying. He gets the names of the, of the 12 disciples. He walks down. He speaks to the 12 disciples. He gathers them up and continues down to the crowd of people who have gathered from Jerusalem and Judea, from Tyre and Sidon, from the whole region, thousands of people. And it says this, they were all trying to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Imagine. Imagine what that was like. The woman in the crowd decides that her only hope is to risk everything. She could easily be identified and killed. She reaches out. She's probably on her hands and knees in the pressing crowd. At any moment, people could stumble over her and crush her. And she reaches out to touch the hem of his robe. And Jesus stops. Now this is fascinating. When we've when we finished the seven churches and got a few little interludes along the way, we're going to enter into a marvelous adventure of coming to terms with how God articulates his mission in the books of Luke and Acts. And so I don't want to give away too much. But here's Here's Jesus. He stops in the crowd and says to the disciples, who touched me? And the disciples are saying, Jesus, everybody's touching you. He said, no, someone touched me. And notice what Jesus says. Because I felt power going from me. 
This is how committed God is to the desperate. Jesus didn't even have to think about healing them. Just imagine. It was just happening automatically. I noticed power leave me, so therefore I know. I know that someone has touched me. Just imagine. Jesus isn't even thinking about it. This is so much part of the nature of God incarnate. So much part of the revealed will of God that it's not an intentional activity of his. It's simply an attribute of his presence. He's present and so the desperate are transformed. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. That's how committed God is to the desperate. So you say, well, Mike, you know, I've I've known times of desperation in my life and honestly, I think I probably know what you're talking about. I think God was present in a way that he maybe wasn't present at other times, but honestly, I'm not sure I like the equation. I'm not sure I'm really into the algorithm of me being desperate, God being close. God being close to the brokenhearted, would he be okay about not brokenhearted? Would he be okay about people being just slightly less desperate? Maybe nearly desperate? Would it be possible for him to, would it be possible for him to just, you know, expand the, the rules as they appear to be? Is there any chance? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The pattern of the life of Jesus reveals to us that he committed himself to identifying with the desperate as part of the rhythm of his life. It wasn't that he had to become desperate. It's that he identified with the identity of desperation. When he began his ministry, he was baptized. The father said, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm very pleased. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. That same spirit takes him into the wilderness. In the wilderness, he is empty. He is alone. He's vulnerable. What do the poor feel? They feel empty. They feel alone. They feel vulnerable. Jesus comes out of the wilderness, not just full of the Spirit, but full of power. And power is is pouring from him. And so Jesus, in identifying with the desperate, 
has received the ministry of God to the desperate. And now, instead of being empty, he's full. And now, instead of of being alone, he is accompanied by God the Spirit. And now, instead of being vulnerable, he is strong. And then it says this. This is the... This is the remarkable thing about Jesus. Look at that last line there, verse 16 of Luke chapter 5. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The word lonely place in Greek is eremos topos. It means dry place. Jesus began in the wilderness, was filled with power in the wilderness, and then Jesus withdrew to that place regularly. And because Jesus withdrew to that place regularly, he trained his disciples in the rhythm of life so that they could learn that being dependent was the same as expressing desperation. This is how it works. Let's just put that slide up with retreat. So this is how it works. Jesus retreats. He withdraws. And he does it consciously. I mean, on one occasion, um, he's in Capernaum. He's seeing amazing things. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. He addresses the fever as if it's some kind of demonic presence and sends it away. And then the whole city is outside of the door coming to Jesus for healing and deliverance. And so he kind of heals people and delivers them. And, And the next morning, Peter and the first few disciples are thinking, okay, well, we've got something on our hands here. This is revival. So, you know, we better get the book contract and the TV people, we better get them. And we, you know, we're gonna need a bigger place. So um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a tent, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you can build a big, 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 big building. Because you know, we're on it here, guys, this is it. Where's Jesus? I don't know, what you look, I don't know. Wasn't he with you? No, what, what do you mean? He's gone? We're, we're in revival, what do you mean he's gone? They can't find him anywhere. They look through the whole town. They go to the city. He's not there. They're calling out, Jesus, where are you? They spread out in wider and wider circles. Eventually, they find him. Peter says, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. This is awesome. Don't you get it? Everybody wants this. Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. Isn't that interesting? You see, Jesus knew how to be in retreat. And he knew what retreat was all about. He knew that retreat was embracing Emptiness. 
And so he was empty. It's a dry place. It's a place without food and water. It's a place where people do not live because it's a dangerous place, and so he's alone. And of course, all of that danger, all of that lack of resource means that this soft-bodied individual is very vulnerable. But the amazing thing is, is that in retreat, Jesus finds something quite different. I'm sure that he knew this pattern. He understood this rhythm. Because he called his disciples to engage in the same thing. They'd just come back from an amazingly successful mission. Everybody was coming and going. They didn't have enough time to eat. Revival had come to town. And Jesus says, come away with me by yourselves and get some rest. He was training them in the patterns of life. And he was showing them how in their abundance they could simply and very easily be fooled into thinking that all of this was down to them. All of this was somehow about their talent or their hard work. It always worries me when I hear leaders say, well, we're just going to hire the brightest and the best and then we'll see great things. It doesn't quite sound like the same strategy that Jesus adopted. What Jesus trained his disciples to do was to go on retreat and then from the retreat to engage. And how would they engage? They would engage as people who were full. They would return to the world of ordinary human engagement, full having been empty. They would come back accompanied by God himself. And rather than be vulnerable, they would be empowered. So empowered was Jesus from his time of retreat up the mountain that power was coming from him and healing them all. He didn't even have to think about it. And so what happens to those who are desperate? Well, the dependent, the dependent who've gone on retreat and have returned from their retreat, transformed, now come to the desperate and they're able to reach out. And they reach out and bring restoration. And with restoration, of course, they bring revival. And with revival, of course, they bring a richness of life that the desperate have never known. 
So if you're desperate today, take heart. If you're desperate today, lift your head. If you're desperate today, you're fortunate among the desperate because Jesus is committed to you. He's committed to you in a way that is extraordinary, amazing, full of grace and compassion. If today you know that you're longing for power in your life to touch the lives of the desperate, if you're looking for the capacity to not only live in revival, but share revival with others who have found desperation. If today you want to be those who shun the spirit of of scarcity, who shun the arrogance of acquisitiveness, and want to live the life of the riches of the kingdom, then of course they're available to you. We can live above the level of mediocrity. We can soar higher than we've been before. And the way that we'll do it is to embrace the identity of the poor and choose in that identity to go to God and say, I really am empty. There's not, I, I can't do any of this thing. I want to see people healed. I want to see people saved. I want to see people's lives transformed. I can't do any of it. I've tried my best talks. I've tried my best gospel answers. I've tried every possible kind of way. I smile a lot. I'm really kind. Children like me. It's amazing, but nothing is happening. And God says, that's right. It's because you're empty. You need to be full. And so in that spirit... We retreat from daily engagement, maybe only momentarily. But as we learn, of course, we become much more able and much more mature in this understanding of this pattern and rhythm of life. We retreat and we we go to God and we say, Lord, I know that you want to touch the lives of the desperate and I'm coming to you on their behalf in their spirit. I'm bringing the identity of the poor. I'm empty, God. I need you. And Lord, I know there are lots of people in my life, but when it comes to this, I'm completely alone. It's like I'm a flagstaff on a bare hilltop Nobody gets me. Nobody understands me. I'm alone in this, Lord. 
and I feel completely vulnerable and weak. That place of dependency is the place of transformation. Not just your transformation, but the transformation of the people who your life will touch. This is not theory. This is practical, lived out Christianity. Practical, lived out Christianity that relies upon God. A reliance not on ourselves, not on our strength, not on our abilities, not on our talent, not on our giftedness, not on our experience or maturity, but God. And God is calling us. You know it. You can feel it. God is drawing us and saying, come away with me and let me fill you. Come away with me and let me strengthen you. Come away with me so that you leave this place accompanied, not just by my presence within you that's always an abiding reality, but my presence all around you, leaking out of you, touching the people of your life. Is this kind of making sense to anybody? So this then is what God is looking for. And it's going to be difficult for us. Because we're Americans. And we live in the 21st century. And if you were to set our life against the life of humanity for all the years that we've walked this planet, we are the richest, the most resourced, the most blessed. And it's not that we count those things as bad because they're gifts of God and no gift of God is bad. But we choose not to rely upon them, but to go to God, not with those things, but without them. And when we go to God without them, then we receive the gifts that are greater than them. The gifts that can change lives. The gifts that can transform neighborhoods and communities. The gifts that will look like the kingdom of God on earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit For theirs is the kingdom of God. So there it is. The church in Smyrna. The church that will be crowned victor. Because of their poverty, Jesus says, You're rich. And to us, probably not the standard members of the Smyrna church. To us, the Lord says, but you can embrace that identity 
And you can choose to be poor in spirit. And you can choose to live this life of retreat and return. And you can reach out in the power that I give you and touch the desperate. Just like Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes. Not poor so that he didn't have anything to share. He could feed 5,000 families in a moment. Not poor so that he had no resources to offer a world in need. He had the armies of God at his beck and call. But poor in the sense that he was utterly dependent upon God and learned in his humanity that dependency as he grew. And as he lived his life among us, demonstrated the rhythm of dependency through retreat and return. And he offers it to you and me. If we'll live this way, everything begins to change. So let's do this. Let's pray together. And... Um, Let's ask God to help us. If this day you feel like you're already desperate and you're thinking, I, I need something, God, help me. Well, then you come and pray with me. And um, uh, prayer team, if you're available, elders and shepherds, if you can come too, that would be great. Uh, but today, especially, if you know that God has put in your heart the transformation of your neighborhood, community, and city. And today, you're saying, Lord, I'm going to follow the way of Jesus and I'm going to look for revival in my day. Then you come and pray too, as I pray. Come on. And it matters little whether we are the desperate or the dependent. It all amounts to the same thing today. We come not in our strength, not in our capacity, our talent, not in our experience or maturity. If Jesus could go to the lonely place, then surely we can. If the Prince of Heaven can say that he's empty, then surely we can. And so, Lord, we say this day, we're empty and we need to be filled. Lord, we need your strengthening presence. Because without it, Lord, we're just alone trying to do these things. And we want to say, Lord, today we're weak and we need your strength. And we thank you, Lord, that your word to us is very clear. 
You say that the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of God. And so we receive it today. We receive the kingdom of God today. And we choose, Lord, to share it. We choose, Lord, to share it because we know that it was never ours in the first place. And so, Lord, even today we ask you for evidence that our emptiness has been filled and that the fullness has overflowed and has touched the lives of the people around us. We pray that for even today and throughout this week. And we'll be glad and quick to give you the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.